0: a reading from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we decided to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker for God in proclaiming the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you for the sake of your faith, so that no one would be shaken by these persecutions. Indeed, you yourselves know that this is what we are destined for. In fact when we were with you, we told you beforehand that we were to suffer persecution. So it turned out, as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor had been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. He has told us all that you, he has told us, also, that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, just as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers and sisters, during all our distress and persecution, we have been encouraged about you through your faith. For we now live, if you continue to stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that, he, that we feel before our God because of you? Night and day, we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. Now may God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness, that you may be blameless before God and Father, our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus, with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. When they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into a time of trial. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. This is the gospel of the Lord.
2: You, Lord Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we, uh, we think and continue to think on Paul's letter to the Thessalonian community, that we would know how we might understand it and apply it, to our own life and our own experience of living with you in this world. So meet us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, some of you know that I've, I've done work in the area of sociology, but one of, the, one of the persons that had some influence over the way I think about sociology was a sociologist named uh, James Hunter. He's, uh, he's a sociologist at the University of Virginia, but he wrote a book a number of years ago on the topic of character development and moral of, and moral education, his book is called "The Death of Character: and Moral Education in an Age Without Good and Evil." Um, and he's he's trying to understand how has this process of moral education and character development um, how's it changing? How is it? Shaping up now in a, in a cultural moment in which there's a little bit of a detachment from any objective way, or maybe we could say, transcendent way in which we talk about truth, about good and evil, about character issues, right? Uh, and he argues, um, among other things, that, that essentially character it, it can't be taught in a classroom. Now I know some of you are teachers, and you wish that that was the case, but you know that it's not the case. right? Um, Character isn't actually taught through a book. It's not taught in a classroom. It's not taught through sort of didactic instruction. It is rather caught inside of a community uh, that has a story that it sort of adheres to and looks to, that has practices that shape its life together, that actually enlarge our moral imagination uh, toward, really, our imaginations toward a moral horizon that's outside of the self, that's bigger than ourselves, bigger than our personal experiences. I, one, one little quote for you. He says this. He says, character outside of a lived community, uh, the entanglements of complex social relationships, and their shared story is impossible impossible the challenge as he saw it two decades ago was that our experiences of community were changing and shifting, that instead of strong ties inside of a community, we were increasingly noticing the development of weak ties, a a detachment, really, from one another, if you want to put it that way. But not just a detachment from one another. Um, In fact, if you think about this, even in our current age, the the way social media and the digital culture has impacted, right, the way we live together, it continues to, what, weaken our ties. He also noted that it's our connection, though, with this transcendent story that becomes uh, problematic as well because we don't know what we're doing or where we're going to. We don't understand how our lives individually relate to something larger than our personal experience of life. So now how does this connect with what Paul is doing in, in this letter to the Thessalonian community? And it's simply this way that he's talking about Formation. Uh, we could say character formation. We could say moral formation. Even he's really talking about the formation of a Christian community that um, follows Jesus in a transformative way. So that the way people lived then would be more reflective of the coming kingdom of God and the kingdom that they saw illustrated and manifest even in the life of Jesus himself during his period of life on earth than the surrounding Roman culture that gave birth to them, right? That's what Paul is talking about. What does it look like for this community in Thessalonica to take next steps of faith, to just keep going with Jesus, if you want to put it that way? And the challenges were multiple, because we've said that this was predominantly a Gentile community. So, in other words, this was not a group of people that had grown up inside of a Jewish faith-believing community. In other words, so they, they lacked those scriptural understandings and knowledge and, a, and, and sort of connections. They lacked the, sort of the ritual and the worship engagement of that community. Um, they were a Gentile community formed inside of Roman culture. And so now do you live in this moment, not only when the Jewish community is beginning to say, we're not so sure the Christians are a part of us. And on the other hand, you're living in this moment where the Romans are beginning to pull away and retreat from them as well. How do you in the midst of conflict, in the midst of opposition, of what Paul says here, persecution, how do you keep taking next steps of faith so that you grow up, so that you keep going with Jesus, if you will, so that you keep um, living with him amidst the challenges to do one of two things, to retreat into a little enclave, a Christian enclave perhaps. It's a bubble-like experience, not really connected to the world, just sort of living away from and outside of time, if you will, if you think about it that way. But we're, you know, without doing that, And then on the other hand, without accommodating the culture, right? Without so assimilating into it that you really, there's not very much difference at all. They're just the same. How do you do that? Because what we see in the person of Jesus is a pattern of being faithful to God and loving neighbor that is incarnational, shows up in real places with real distinction, but with real love. So let's think about uh, how that plays out in this letter and particularly this part. And I want to sort of focus... Uh, the things I say on th- along three lines, so the presence presence in community, um, the restoration of faith and uh, doxological power, so presence, restoration, and doxology, we could say, so first presence in community, verses one to five here we 've already seen throughout the letter that Paul loved this group of people, right he feels attached to them. He feels committed to them. He misses them. Last week, we used the language of, he used the language rather of, I feel like an orphan because I'm not with you. I'm not in that home that is you. Uh, We also talked about that in, in the language, using the language of the term homesickness. Paul felt a kind of homesickness for that Christian community. Now, it's interesting. We get what those feelings feel like, right? We've all had moments when we felt homesick for example and maybe it's you could think back to some childhood experience or even some relatively recent experience where you've you've taken a trip away from your family or you've gone off to camp or something or maybe you've just been away at college right and there it's not unlike it's not unlikely that we all hit moments when we're absent from people that love us and people that know us deeply, that we feel a sense of homesickness. And what we mean by that is I just need to be around people that love me. That's what I need. That's what I, I feel the need to be in community like that. And we very often feel that with family or maybe with particular groups of friends. Do you feel it with the church? Because Paul did. Paul takes a metaphor, an idea, that we regularly use to speak about being absent from family. And he said, that's what I feel like when I think of the church, of you, of your community, your experience together of Christ. I long to be near you. He applies it to the church. He's worried, right? Yes, I said the word. Paul was worried. He was a little bit anxious about their faith. Now, We often speak of worry in very negative terms, but Paul here is describing an internal anxiety that he has for this home that he longs to be back in, and he's particularly anxious about their faith. Why? Because their life circumstances are changing. They've first believe in this sort of moment of enthusiasm, embracing the story of who Jesus is. They turn from idols to serve the one true living God, and they feel a sense of, this is exciting, this is good, I'm, I'm into this. But now Paul knows that their experience is beginning to take them into hard places, Life doesn't always turn out the way we want it to turn out. We experience suffering in various ways. And this new Christian community was beginning to experience and taste the possibility, the probability of more suffering just because they were a church, just because they were trying to follow Jesus together. And Paul says, I need to know how you're doing. When I could bear it no longer, I released the tight group of Christians that were around me, Timothy most notably, to go to you so that he could be present to you, and then he could report back how you're doing in the faith. Paul longed for this particular community. He wanted to be present inside of this particular Christian community. Now, the important thing here is just to note this, that in this very early moment of the Christian church, what was beginning to happen was that the church was becoming an alternate family. (laughs) It was becoming an alternate family, that in every possible way was becoming this kind of thick community that buoyed faith, that helps you take those next steps of faith in the midst of this life in this broken world. N.T. Wright, a New Testament scholar, observes that that Christians uh, are not only children. We're not alone. The moment we begin to find attachment with Jesus and we connect with the reality of who he is, we are immediately brought alongside of one another as his people, as his family, as a community. We're not only children, but here's the challenge, I think, for the church in our particular day. Amidst some of the cultural changes of sort of these weak ties that are brought on perhaps by social media and digital technology to some degree, amidst those realities and amidst our own propensity to what? Just to be strongly individualist, right? We want to be the curators of our own spiritual faith, our own spiritual journey, our own spiritual reality. Amidst these realities, one of the things that's happened, I think, to the church in our day and maybe even to City Church to some degree is that, is that we, we become communities that are just characterized by weak ties. We move in and out effortlessly. We come and go effortlessly. Our attachments aren't very strong. But what I want us to see about this particular moment in this very early moment of the Christian church is that Paul knew that the Christian community needed to sort of come together as an alternate family, an alternate space of moral formation, of community formation, of character formation, that it would become the kind of space filled with strong ties and attachments that would enable them to remember the story of Christ, the shared story of Christ, and that would enable them to live in the world in some faithful way. That reflects the likeness of Jesus. Our spiritual lives aren't things that we're meant to curate alone, but rather we're meant to find them curated in the community of the body of Christ, together alongside of one another in relationships. Now, community, presence. Second thing, restoring faith. Verses 6 to 10, particularly verse 10 here. Faith, uh, as we've seen really throughout the letter, Paul articulates that this particular community had strong faith, right? They, like, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Like They were following Jesus uh, with vigor, we could say, right? There was a, a strength to their faith, and he's acknowledged that. And he's even acknowledged it here as he hears the report back from Timothy. They have faith. So when Paul says in verse 10, night and day we pray earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith – what does he mean? Because I read that and it feels a little bit conflictual with all of these affirmations of the presence of faith, a vibrant faith, a living faith, a true faith, a deep faith, right? What does Paul mean here? What he begins to say, we want to restore whatever is lacking in your faith. Some translations put this complete whatever is lacking in your faith. What does he mean? Well, think about your own life for just a moment. If I were to ask you how you're doing in your spiritual life, if I was to say, hey, how are you doing in your life with Jesus, what would you say, what do you need now? How would you fill in the blank? How would you fill in that blank? What do you need now? Or maybe you'd ask the question, you know, what do I need this year that I didn't necessarily think I needed last year? (laughs) Right? I mean, because we're growing up, right? I'm, I'm changing with every year of my life. I encounter, not only do I encounter developmental issues inside of my aging body, but I encounter circumstantial issues, contextual issues, right? Life, I encounter different challenges than I encountered last year. So if I answer that question, what do I need to keep going with Jesus, to understand how the story of Christ is large enough to fit my current circumstances? What do you need to move into that chapter? See, I think what Paul is talking about here is just very simply growth. He's talking about the maturation of faith. He's talking about a growing faith. He's talking about a faith that needs something tomorrow that it didn't necessarily need yesterday. He's dealing with real life in real places so that we grow up in the likeness of Jesus and we keep going with Jesus in this particular context that they would keep going with Jesus amidst persecution, amidst difficulties and hardships, amidst disappointments. What do you need in your life if you're to keep going with Jesus, let me mention three things or suggest three things. You need mentors, spiritual guides, and you need allies. You need mentors, you need spiritual guide, and you need allies. A mentor is someone who maybe they've studied a little bit more than you. Maybe they've walked with Jesus longer. They possess some kind of wisdom or understanding of the Christian life that is beyond you. And so, of course, you read books, and you listen to sermons, and you attend seminars, and you expose yourself to persons that have unique unique capabilities or unique studies or unique things, right, in their lives that enable them to speak more truthfully and intelligibly into your life. You need mentors. Do you have those? Are you attached to places like that? But you also need spiritual guides. And these might be people in your local community who are just a little ahead of you. They're friends that are ahead of you. They've walked with Jesus just a little bit longer. If you're newly married, maybe it's someone that's been married 10 years or 15 years. If you're you're a young parent, maybe it's someone who's just a little bit further down the road with you in parenting their children. If you're sort of in a vocational space that's new and young, maybe it's another Christian that's in a similar field, but just a little bit further along. If you struggle with some particular temptation, maybe it's someone in the community that struggled with that same kind of temptation just a little bit longer than you have. They're they're ahead of you in some way, so they're able to come alongside of you as a guide. But you really need this, and maybe you need this most of all. You need to live and exist inside of a community of allies. And these are peers, these are individuals that are on your same space of life, but they're allies with you, by which I mean just simply this. They participate with you in your vocational life with Jesus. They follow Jesus with you, alongside of you. They're in community with you. They're present to your life in this community. I recently came across a distinction that's helped me understand how I relate to my my spiritual allies, how I relate to my own community of allies. And the distinction is simply this. It's the distinction between the phrase or the idea... meeting up with a friend to catch up with them versus meeting up with a friend to participate in life with them catching up versus participation catching up versus participation it's helped me think about my own relationships and my own spaces in life where i'm seeking to have people help me keep going as a christian and the distinction is just this catching up has to do with the past Stacey and I have lived in multiple cities, we've participated in multiple churches, uh, we've been leaders in multiple churches, and so we have friends that are strung out across the country, right? Now that's, a, that's not always a very satisfying place for our friends to be, right? Strung out across the country, but we have that and you have that too. And maybe even inside of this old city, you have friends that you just episodically see. You just episodically get with. There's no consistency to it, but you periodically see them. And when you see them, what do you do? You get together. You you get a cup of coffee. You get a beer. You have a meal. You go to a play. You do something with them. And one of the things that almost inevitably will happen with your friends is, is you'll catch up. And catching up means what? It means you tell me what's happened in your life since the last time I saw you, and I tell you what's happened in my life since the last time I saw you. We caught up. And we do that all the time. But there's a difference between catching up and the kind of relationships that you participate alongside of with other people in. And it's just this. Participation requires a kind of consistency pres- of presence. There needs to be a regularity to presence. In the absence of regular presence with other people, what happens? I don't develop enough trust with you to know that I can catch up about things in the present. I can tell you things I've resolved. I can tell you things I've come through maybe. But I might not let you in to the now, to what's hard for me now. And I might not invite your voice to intentionally speak into my life in this particular moment of struggle. So the question I I have for myself and then I have for you and for us as a community is what are your relationships like inside of the body of Christ? Are you a catch-up kind of person? Or do you have relationships that have the kind of consistency, the kind of enjoyable, enjoyable moments, and the kind of intentionality around spiritual friendship that actually allows you to grow up? to find restoration of faith, to find faith figuring out how you might take a next step? Are you in those kinds of deep and thick entangled relationships that are entangled in a good way for your good? The presence in community, restoration of faith, and then finally, doxology. In these last verses of this particular text, verses 11 to 13, Paul really takes us back to the heart of our shared story, and it's the story of God's actions among us, right? God's presence in our midst by His Spirit that empowers in us a new way of being, not just in the way we relate to God now, receiving Him, loving Him, bending the knee toward Him, but also the way we relate to one another. Paul says, so that your love may abound more and more, Your love abounding toward not just God but one another in the space of your relationships out of the kind of relationship and love that you've experienced with God. So Paul prays for God's continued presence in that community, for his continued action, that he would strengthen their hearts, which simply means that God by his spirit would not just deal with the surface reality of your life, but he would actually penetrate your soul. He would connect with your deepest self, your interior self, aligning you with God and his love so that you would begin to live differently in the world, transformed, not conformed, Paul comes back to this glorious moment as he thinks about the possibility of presence inside of the community of God. and He thinks about the possibility of growing up and taking next steps. And he can't help but remember that this isn't just a pipe dream. It's not illusion, but it's real. Why? Because God has shown up in the world. God has shown up in our lives. God has loved us inside and invited us into community with himself, with his own self. This morning we read the, uh, this really beautiful gospel reading from Mark 14, which is a profound statement of Jesus' love. Think about it with me for just a moment. Jesus in our world, and maybe you can imagine yourself in his shoes ever so slightly in that moment in the garden. He's passed through this life with his disciples of engaging the problems and and brokenness of our world, of speaking truth in different contexts, of inviting the marginal into community and so on and so forth. And he's reached this point where the surrounding communities are just done with him. They're ready to take his life. And he knows that. And so here he is in this particular moment, alone in this space of prayer. The disciples are around him. He's asked them to join, you know, to be a community of allies if you will right around him that he would sort of they would prop him up they would pray with him they would be present to him in some way so Jesus is off and in this moment of sort of intense prayer with God the Father he's what anticipating what seems absolutely impossible and the moment you begin to wrap your mind around this of the trinity experiencing some type of division within itself so that he could say right he could experience death and aloneness the aloneness of death itself It just seems impossible that the Son of God would ever experience something like that. But Jesus, as he anticipates it, is there praying, if it's possible, can this cup pass from me? If it's possible for me not to experience this kind of aloneness, this kind of separation, this kind of fissure, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. So you see this resolute posture inside of Jesus, this worry perhaps, this anxiety, this uncomfortableness with what God, with what he is about to encounter because of his solidarity with us. With us. Choosing solidarity with us, which will automatically bring him into the space of division of some sort that he doesn't want, doesn't desire, but for the sake of love he chooses. It's such a beautiful and profound moment. And then he gets up, and he goes back, and he sees that the disciples are taking a rest. They can't be a community of allies. How has God loved you? You see, that story of Jesus tells me that regardless of what you've done, regardless of your failures regardless of any wrong turn you imagine yourself to have taken in life, that moves you further away from God, regardless of any negative experience you've ever had, regardless of all that is wrong in your life and in our world, nothing can separate you from love like that. These were the persons who knew Jesus the best. These were the persons who loved Jesus the most. These were the persons who lived and walked and gave up vocation to be near him, and they took a rest. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm done with you. Jesus persistently says, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. And so for the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross. So Jesus here in this profound moment demonstrates and enacts God's love for people like us. And what Paul is inviting the community to in Thessalonica is to hold on to that experience of love such that they become the kind of community amidst all odds, amidst all opposition, amidst even persecution and disruption of life itself, that they would be a community that loves like that because they have been so loved. That's his invitation to them then and his invitation to us now to become a community of strong ties to become a space in which we encourage one another towards a restoration a growing up in faith as we experience the presence of god in our midst let's pray together our father in heaven we ask that as we think on these words that you would help us to know how to become a community that enacts them and practices them because we are a community that experiences the very presence of Christ in our midst. So meet us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as we continue in our worship that we might love you and love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.